Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones equal to... Arriba. Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. My name is Yogo Dorkis Kulboy. And I'm Brian Kodak. And I'm Sadia Patti. And together, we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% November darkness. Oh my god, it's so dark. It's so dark. <laughs> it is. It kind of feels like it's in almost the night here, when it's not. <laughs> I know, and then getting up in the morning and it's nighttime. <sighs> But it's almost Christmas, guys. Come on. It's okay. <laughs> it's a good thing. Christmas markets, Christmas shopping. Nice try. Nice try. Christmas I, menus. I know. <laughs> keep trying. Keep trying. <laughs> I'm still not happy. <laughs> What's the sunset in? Uh, where in the world are you? And what time is your sunset, Joel? Uh, I am in Copenhagen, and I have no idea, but I know that it is too early. It's, what, like 4 p.m. now when we record in Copenhagen, and it's already been dark for a long time. <laughs> oh, God. Isn't that awful, Sadia? <laughs> that is awful. That's, you just need to wake up earlier, Jill. That's what you need to do. Yeah, but it's dark when you wake up. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> Regardless it's, of what you it's impossible. Where in the world are you guys? We are sharing uh, a microphone headpiece what is it called headphones yes uh we're sharing headphones and crowding over the microphone at sadia's office in london yes back oh, in london cute very cute yes <laughs> it's very it's very cozy on this winter day we're sharing sweets too jewel just so you know oh i'm missing so much sitting here in the, <laughs> by, by the arctic circle <laughs> the portal circle we are of course uh this season like the last running on the pure steam of Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, which is our sponsor. It's an online service focused on international investment law, which has for more than 10 years offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. So, to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, you should visit iareporter.com. And Amazing. we all do. <laughs> Just and to we confirm, all do. We all do constantly. Thank you, IA Reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And also, I want to say thank you, Taylor St. John, who uh, was on the podcast a long time ago and whose book about the rise of investor state arbitration has been used by us repeatedly because um, she sent me something hilarious. I haven't uh, explained this to you guys yet, but she, she obviously has an unhealthy relationship to archives in general and the World Bank archives in particular being a political scientist interested in, in the history of dispute settlement, she sent me the World Bank's newsletter from the 1960s. There, it's called the International Bank Notes. Oh. Wow. What does that say? Uh, so this, I, I have one here from June 1964, which is why we are interested in this, because it's obviously the time, just the, the height of the exit convention drafting, basically. Mm -hmm. 
the World Bank was such a different place in the 1960s. Who were the intended recipients of this newsletter? People working at the World Bank. Oh, okay, like the local community paper. Yeah, and it it seems so small. They have, like, new books in the library. It's like James Bond novels have now arrived, and you can come and read from the library. (laughs) (laughs) Such a tiny place, and it's obviously directed towards men, because the people working at the World Bank are all men, and like half of it is devoted to the wives of the men. <laughs> what? I'm interested. What? What is that? Can you give us more detail? Yeah, about just, this? just to give you a taste. Um, Mr. Aaron Brokers, Mr. Ixit, basically is is yeah. in a photo here from a bowling tournament that the World Bank held for its employees. But Mrs. Aaron Brokers, and she's actually called Mrs. Aaron Brokers, is also there. So I guess she would be Mrs. Ixit convention to us. and they also have like tennis competitions and golf tournaments and all these like social circle things for people connected to the world bank and it's in this newsletter but the gender roles oh my god they are should we say different in 1964 the world bank wives is a frequent phrase (laughs) oh my god so you're a world bank wife wbg and what are the world bank wives known for well they have a, a community of their own there's a there's a oh. column in in this newsletter written um, by one such world bank wife and it's just about that how to be a good wife sprinkled with anecdotes when you know your husband who works for the bank and therefore has to travel how do you make your uh, your job as the world bank wife <laughs> Oh my gosh, you have to send me this so I can send this to my husband. (laughs) (laughs) World Bank husband. (laughs) I I would actually, for the benefit of our readers, read from this a little bit because it's just such a different time. Too many nuggets in here to read all of it out loud, but it's hilarious, this column. She prepares her well-traveled husband for his trip, I think it's to Bangkok by way of Geneva. Uh, did you remember to get your cholera shot? Did you take your slacks to the Scania store? Should I send a like now and tell them to send it to Geneva for you to pick up? Would it be better for you to take my watch with you to leave with Mayrat to be mailed? Or should I send it? Or do you want to be bothered? By the way, when all of this has been paid for, I'm afraid the kitchen fan is going to have to wait a little. Oh, my God. Here, her husband replies, any fan you choose will be fine. Oh, men, am I right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's more. she should work at a law firm with all her forward thinking. Yes, exactly. She's <laughs> like more. the personal secretary. More coming. Joe, do you call Madame Gentod in Geneva? She sounded sort of depressed in her Christmas letter, and I don't think the new daughter-in-law is working out very well. Don't forget to ring the Dufresne and the Batanias, and be sure to ask Simone about the rock garden at the chalet. Now, if you have any of my measurements and the, this design, do you think Madame Subarb in Geneva could uh, make a dress for me? Uh, I don't want anything else. Just you back safely. My husband oh. raised his head at last. I'm sorry, my poo-poo. What were you saying? <laughs> yes, stop. <laughs> I must read this report now before tomorrow, but anything you want from the Far East, just make a list. Just make a list. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't even know. She's like, That's hilarious. Oh, and there's a silence when he's gone and you know, she, she gets a cable from the World Bank that he has arrived safely in Bangkok and she just sighs of relief like, oh, he's gone again, but he's fine. Oh. <laughs> what is that? What? So wait, say that again. So is that published in this newsletter going to all the employees in the exit? That is super personal stuff. Why would they put that in there? It's a column. She's like complaining about... Oh. 
it's his third trip abroad or his third, you know, posting something. So I get the impression that there are regular columns from this house bank wife when she's just like oh, musing okay. about life as a World Bank wife and the intended recipients are, I guess, other World Bank wives who can chuckle along like, oh, oh, oh my husband also travels and he's oh, minded like thoughts of a World Bank oh, wife. Right. Okay. But okay. do you do you think she's complaining or bragging? Um, both, but I think mostly the latter. It sounds not like bragging. It, it, I mean, I just read a few paragraphs here. It's, it's a lot of names and, and locations. And it's like arbitration lawyers. Like, oh, well, I met him in Geneva, and then I had to go to Bangkok, and I had to pick up something. Right. And... <laughs> it's like what we say when we complain about <laughs> traveling and stuff. That's hilarious. Wow. Yes, but That's yeah, funny. We can post a link to it, because there are more of these. And I, I thank Taylor St. John on the record for for pointing me to this because they're all in the World Bank archives many parts of which are digitalized and open to the public so you can just find the, the PDF, the scanned versions of this and just the pictures and you know it's like Mad Men but they're all international Yeah work. I was going to say it's very Mad Men well it's kind of it's, it, it's like the role that you had as a diplomat right the wife that you had was part of Right I was the thinking role, the same okay. thing yeah. it was like that she was in charge of like social interaction yeah. and hosting and yeah. she would be in charge of like knowing who was who and so in in order if he would go abroad and meet someone and like an, at yeah. an embassy it'd be like oh don't forget the ambassador's mm-hmm. wife likes to do this and this and i'd be like hello mrs Dada, how's the so-and-so yeah. <laughs> and it's like uh yeah it's like the first lady's role right, right. like people make it it's very important but so. now the first lady can have a brain and have a mission that's more than like Packing knitting club, club. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wow. So we all of us arbitration lawyers have to include our spouse. Is that what it means to yeah. <laughs> have a special call-in for them? And like so, stop thinking you're so important by name-dropping countries and cities. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all know you're going to a hotel room and like... From inhaling, conference room to yeah. conference room, yeah. exactly. To lounge and inhaling circulated air. It's like you're not that cool. No. All right. What are we doing today? Am I right in assuming we have only one substantive topic and might actually end up under an hour this time? Let's see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling particularly <laughs> verbose at the moment. But you're, are, aren't you the one doing the substantive topic? So it's yeah, all yeah, in your hands. I'm asking because then that means I can professorialize for like 40 minutes if there's only one. That's perfect. Is that the academic version of mansplaining? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not going to let you do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we might have some rude interruptions and questions. Yeah. Yeah, you should. I'll be I'll be talking about the exit roster, which is actually not something you should be talking about for 40 minutes. It might even be uh, much quicker than that. But it's prompted by a recent Kluver arbitration blog post about states designating non-nationals to their mm. exit roster, which made me realize we haven't really talked about how the exit appointment process works and how exit deals with their appointments, both to tribunals and to ad hoc annulment committees. So I'm going to do a exit appointments 101. Great. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And then we will move on to happy fun time, which is something that Savia and I can maybe take the lead on, which has to do with the pitches done by firms for business or the marketing and kind of glamorizing your firm for potential yeah, clients. Yeah, exactly. And if I may say, everything we say will be in our personal capacity and That's not right. as <laughs> our firm or even previous or ex-firms we belonged into. Right. That always applies. <laughs> that always applies. Yeah, it's good to re-emphasize, but that always applies, obviously. 
Exactly. Oh, of course. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a skill that you, it's like a, a side extraneous skill that you develop as a lawyer that you never thought you'd do mm-hmm. when you start, which is the business side of the of the firm. And that you're not trained for. <laughs> yeah. We can, we can talk about it a little more later. Yes, absolutely. Great. Then let's go. So as I said, I realized we talk a lot about exit tribunals and exit annulment committees on the assumption that everyone knows exactly how the appointment process actually works. But uh, I didn't really. And maybe you guys don't either. Uh, I assume neither of you has been appointed to the exit roster, for example. I, I was, but I turned it down. <laughs> it's not prestigious enough, really. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah, same, 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 same. Yeah, we'll, we'll return to that. We will return to that. Um, they don't pay enough money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so before I jump into the substance of this Kluver arbitration blog post and talk about nationalities of exit arbitrators, let me back the van up a little bit and start from scratch. So the exit convention provides for an appointing authority who is not primarily engaged in arbitration matters. And the president of the World Bank is the appointing authority under the convention in his or her capacity. It's uh, his, actually now it's David Malpass is the 13th of the World Bank presidents in order. Um, Always an American, by the way, which I think we may have mentioned uh, due to some informal arrangements in the world of international economic law. Uh, And if you remember, there was a short time when rumors suggested that Ivanka Trump might be the next one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we reported about it on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we maybe we dodged a bullet there. I don't know anything about David Malpass, but I know he's not uh, the daughter of the president, at least. So he is now. (laughs) The, the president of the World Bank, which means that he's also the chairman of the Administrative Council of Exit. So uh, he has a number of capacities under the Exit Convention. But then we, of course, also have the Exit Secretary General, who's more involved in practice, because it is a badly kept secret that since the World Bank president, i.e. the chairman of the Exit Administrative Council, is pretty busy with other stuff, in practice, the exit secretary general has a lot of influence. And the secretary general is uh, elected by the administrative council from among the candidate or candidates proposed by the chairman, i.e. the World Bank president. And it's a majority of two thirds of the exit member states represented in the administrative council that elects the secretary general for six years and uh, he or she is eligible for re-election. The current secretary general, of course, is Meg Kinnear, who was re-elected in 2016 and Mm -hmm. is therefore halfway through more or less her second term. And here I have to pause. I've spoken to Brian about this. Why do we uh, never hear jokes about Meg Kinnear's name being so similar to Greg Kinnear, the the actor? <laughs> I was so in, like enthralled by your presentation. I, was I like, know. I was like, "What is he note. saying? What is going on, Jewel? Come Why on!" Why do sunflowers rotate in the sky? <laughs> okay, I was hoping Would you for have you. Have made this joke if she was not a woman. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, good question, maybe. Okay, I was going to propose that I, uh, from here on out, will call Meg Kinnear Greg Kinnear on this podcast, but then I won't do that. It's <laughs> In any event, the Secretary General, regardless of name, plays the main role 
a sort of a quasi appointing authority under uh, most exit procedures. And we have both the so-called ba ballot procedure, uh, but also procedures that are in the exit convention. Uh, we'll get back to both of these categories pretty soon. Um, but I just want to mention that the Secretary General is also the appointing authority where ICSID serves as appointing authority under the UNCITRAL rules uh, and or when state parties in their treaties have directly given ICSID this authority to act as appointing authority. Uh, for example, in NAFTA and CETA, the TPP and the Protocol to the Pacific Alliance, this is the case. So whenever ICSID acts under these treaties, it is the Secretary General directly who is the appointing authority. Mm. Um, but then we have, of course, the, the default, which is the ICSID Convention cases. And when acting as appointing authority in cases under the ICSID Convention, the chairman the World Bank president, must always select from the ICSID roster. And this applies in particular in two circumstances, either for appointments of arbitrators, most often the chair in convention cases, or for appointments of all three members of ad hoc committees for annulment proceedings who are always appointed by the chairman. The chairman, as I hinted at, is assisted, of course, by the secretary general and the secretariat at ICSID in carrying out this appointing authority function. So this means that in the quote-unquote ordinary procedure, ICSID is restricted to the ICSID roster when making appointments, which brings us to how does one get appointed to the ICSID mm -hmm. roster and become a potential uh, nominee for ICSID cases under the ordinary procedure. The roster is composed of government appointees, up to four per member government or member state, plus 10 selected by the chairman, known as the chairman's list. Mm. The criteria for arbitrator qualifications uh, are in Article 14 of the Exit Convention. They are super general, and I will read them in their entirety. Persons designated to serve on the panels shall be persons of high moral character and recognized competence in the fields of law, commerce, yes. industry, mm -hmm. or finance. Who may yeah, that be can't be you, Jill, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay, so far so good, we're eligible. <laughs> oh, well, so far so good, yeah. Who may be relied upon to exercise independent judgment? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Competence yes. in the field of law shall be of particular importance in the case of persons on the panel of arbitrators. Because there's also this panel of conciliators, as you may know, which we don't really care about, but maybe should. So they don't have to be lawyers. They can <laughs> or just competent. Be okay, yeah. <laughs> but they have to be competent then in, in commerce, industry, or finance, and maybe semi-competent in law, at least. Okay. Right. Although, being lawyers, we tend to prefer lawyers, typically. And obviously, if we look at the, the people who do decide these cases, it's very rare to have non-lawyers appointed as arbitrators, at least in, in modern-day practice. Mm -hmm. Then there are a lot of informal, uh, highly desirable attributes that are not necessary for designation, uh, such as knowledge and experience with international investment law, knowledge and experience with public international law, international arbitration, uh, you know, ability to conduct an arbitration and write an arbitral award, um, and fluency in one or more of the center's official languages. They have three. Which are they, Sandy and Brian? Mm -hmm. English, Spanish, French. Mm, yeah, I have two out of three. Do you have three out of three? 
two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a quarter over the years, actually. What are sorry, just Jill, these informal requirements, are they written in the rules as well? No. 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 Okay. These are just uh, basically it's me making things up based off of Okay. All right. Data. I'll data. cite to that one. <laughs> okay. Availability though is another one. Uh, a pretty important one. You have to be able to accept appointments in cases mm -hmm. as of the date of designation, uh, as well as uh, willingness to travel for proceedings. But you have made this up again? This is another one of Joel's lists? Um, I've, I've read all of these in different places. So I mean, Willingness to travel? Like, yeah. no, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so remember, we're not talking about how to get on the roster in the first place, not how to get appointed to a case. So this is like things that states may consider. And obviously, you won't put okay. uh, a 86-year-old arbitrator on the list who can't leave his or her hometown because then that person will never be appointed anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And Joel, I think so, you should draft an unofficial list and get it published and it becomes Joel's list. Yeah, exactly. Should but we refer so, to the so, Joel's list? It's so different, though, from state to state. It's kind of hard to make a general idea. And I, I don't want to compete with it. the exit people. They know this so much better, although they can't. Oh, of so course, the Swedish mentality. I'm like, brand yourself. Sell yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, okay, sorry. Um, if every exit government appointed four members to the roster, we would end up with more than 600 individuals. Uh, that has obviously not happened. Another thing is that governments may nominate persons of any nationality and ICSID very strongly in different contexts encourages member states to name qualified candidates, especially where nominations have expired or uh, the ICSID roster is, is incomplete. And it's not clear, I should say, how active a role, if any, that ICSID has taken in this regard beyond calling for qualified candidates. I don't really know whether ICSID comments or response to requests for comments on proposals and nominations made by governments or if they even suggest potential candidates if requested to do so. I have no information and my impression is that states do this completely independent of exit and then exit just gets the end results and, and has to deal with it somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, we talk a little bit about nationality because that is after all what is in the, the Clue Arbitration blog post. There was um, a latest phase of designations here with a number of governments updating their rosters because the term had expired for, for their nominations. And Germany selected German arbitrators, Franco Ferrari, Patricia Nascimento, Sabine Conrad and Stefan Schill. Uh, but it's interesting here that Franco Ferrari is on the list. He is of particular interest to us because he has a German mother and was raised and educated in Germany. This is in the Clover Arbitration blog post, all of this. But he is, in fact, an Italian national. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and working in at NYU, right? Is he a yeah. professor at NYU? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And as far as mm -hmm. I remember, I think he's the, he hasn't really worked that much in Germany in his, in his career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Article 13 of the Exit Convention provides that a contracting state's designees, quote, may but need not be its nationals, end quote. And, of course, given the borderless nature of international arbitration and the loose links at times between practitioners and their state of origin, uh, one might expect designations, I think, to result from individual reputation rather than nationality. 
Uh, and this is where the blog post comes in, because there is an informal tradition of states, at least larger states, to put their own nationals exclusively on the ICSID roster. Smaller states have been more flexible for obvious reasons, because smaller states don't typically have four experienced nationals who are available and meet all of these criteria that I, I explained. Hmm. Or maybe they do, but they're under too much pressure from other people, or I don't know, to appoint other people. Who knows? Yeah, yeah it could be. Could absolutely be. Um, so the BIS-CS treaty arbitrators tend to come from a small group of jurisdictions. Uh, basically, your two home states, France and the United States, but also Australia, Canada, Germany, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, UK, basically. Um, so you would expect that yeah, we would see a lot of those on the exit roster, but uh, in this blog post it is mentioned that only 10% of past and present panel members are non-nationals. So basically all mm. of these states with a lot of practitioners, they only have four spots each. Mm. And are they all taken? Because I remember about five or six years back going to an event where Meg Kinner was speaking, and she said that she was calling all member states to fill in those four people because apparently they weren't, they they wouldn't every state wouldn't submit for, um, for names. No. Is that still true? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know the exact numbers, but it is surprisingly common right. that we states just contact them. don't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that's I mean, exactly that, what it, happened, I think, for some of the small states. Where people, hello, this yeah. is Donald Trump. <laughs> I'd like to appoint Brian Connick. I can't do accents. <laughs> or voices. Yeah, I'm in the middle of an impeachment right now, but that's okay. <laughs> well done. <laughs> the other thing, Saga's point was that you should reach out to some island nation somewhere who's an exit convention yeah. state and approach them instead because their list maybe isn't filled. And But this yeah, is... But can I... I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but like, what's the incentive? I mean, we're talking about states choosing specific nationalities or specific or choosing their own. It, it, do you think a state has any incentive to choose its own nationals? Because it's not like they're going to get any favor in any cases or have any like protection or say. It's not like there's meetings between these arbitrators. I don't know. I think, I mean, th they, there's a vetting procedure, obviously. And uh, I think it makes sense that a domestic vetting procedure it would be expected to result in a mainly domestic field of candidates. So Latvian arbitrators are more likely to apply for the designation with the Latvian authorities than arbitrators who aren't Latvian, basically. But there is also right. obviously politics involved. I have more than once heard established arbitrators complain that they can never get on their home state's exit list for this reason or that um, they aren't, aren't good friends with the government or they aren't, you know, they're dual nationals, for example. I don't know if you would probably be eligible, Brian, for, to be appointed or designated by Sweden, but maybe they would prefer a more Swedish person, someone who has like done a lot of government service or someone who is a good brand name to, to export in the world of arbitration, who mm -hmm. has some favors. But that's to, all it is, right? It's just a figurehead. Yes, basically, um, I think so. I mean, clearly they'll sit on cases and spread the word that way, but there's no, there's no incentive of a state to a fill the roster. There's, it's all just voluntary compliance, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is pro because arbitration is special. I think compared to all the other uh, fora we have of international dispute resolution, if if you are given the opportunity to appoint to any other international court, it's just 
uh, self-evident that you will appoint a national, but in arbitration you don't have to. So I think it's maybe just an established practice from other international courts and tribunals that has spilled over because ministries typically uh, don't know enough about arbitration and don't really see the benefits of appointing non-nationals. Mm-hmm. Right. But that being said, there are a bunch of people listed in the blog post who are non-nationals, some of whom are actually pretty significant arbitrators. Yves Duran, mm. for example, is French. He's designated by Albania. Um, Franco Ferrari had already been designated by Saint Lucia, so yeah, mm-hmm. before Germany appointed him. Alexi Moore is designated by North Macedonia. Jon Paulson by Iran. <laughs> Uh, the French. is designated by the, the Seychelles, although he's Italian. Uh, but isn't Jan, isn't, sorry, isn't Jan Paulsen, didn't he even get the nationality from Bahrain or something? I thought he did. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, we talked about this when Brian uh, became a dual citizen. I, I know he's Swedish and French. I, oh, I okay. so have Never heard, mind. but I don't really know. Brigitte okay. Stern is not designated by France, but by Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so there are a lot, but you can see all of these people I mentioned are from states where the competition is crazy uh, Mm -hmm. for these four spots available. So So they must have lobbied. Yes. Uh, Or, like, you know, worked for the government. It could be as easy as that. a beauty contest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think think it's it's more like what Jill mentioned. I I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that Yves Dorance has probably worked for Albania at some point. Right. And then it just came up during the conversation. Yeah. Like, hey, could I sit on your... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I have no knowledge of this. I'm just uh, completely... No, no, no. It could also be the other way around. At the state, it's like, oh, shit, we we have to renew this list. We can't find four arbitrators that we are comfortable with within our own jurisdiction. Hmm, who do we know who's an international arbitration lawyer? Oh, maybe the person who came here to advise us on something else or who was on a case that we were involved in in the past or something like that. Right, right. Because you're de- going to deal with probably the same people who have a say in appointing, you know, people on the list and right. the people who are handling the arbitrations, probably the same people. Yeah, who knows? good point. But then we have the exit chairman list also that I mentioned. So the mm-hmm. chairman can select 10 members of the roster in addition to all the ones designated by... Oh, yeah, the, the special chairman list. Okay, yes, and exactly. who's on that? So here, the chairman receives recommendations from the secretariat, the exit secretariat, and the recommendations are not disclosed, but there are some obligations uh, for this list. So the chairman must ensure representation of the principal legal systems of the world and the main forms of economic activity, i.e. both socialism and capitalism. Um, And uh, it's also the case that uh, where the chairman appoints an arbitrator from the exit roster pursuant to Article 38, um, the Secretary General uh, makes recommendations to the chairman regarding potential appointees. Same factors here may come in, actually. I have a quote here from Meg Kinnear. Uh, I am reading this with my Meg Kinnear voice in case you can't tell the difference. Greg Kinnear or Meg Kinnear? (laughs) Gotta choose. (laughs) We probably consider many of the same factors that parties consider when they make appointments. Most important factors include, first of all, the nationality of the arbitrators so that we respect the requirements under the exit convention with respect to nationality, i.e. that none of the arbitrators appointed by the exit chairman may be of the same nationality as either of the parties. Next, we consider whether there are possible conflicts of interest. We also consider the potential arbitrator's knowledge of the relevant laws and their experience in arbitration. 
Another important factor is language proficiency, depending on the requirements both of the documents and the oral hearings. We also look to the availability of the arbitrator and in particular the manageability of their current caseload so that we can make sure that we have a timely and expeditious procedure. Finally, we look to the cohesiveness of the tribunal and in some cases where a particular expertise is needed, we will try to ensure that that kind of expertise is on the tribunal. So this was in individual cases. I sort of moved away a little bit, I realized, from the, this chairman's list. Let me read a few names from the current chairman's list. Some of the members of this 10-people list. We have uh, many frequent appointees. Stanimir Alexandrov, Yaspani mm -hmm. Fatimi, Zach Douglas, Lucinda Lowe, uh, Von Lowe, Loretta Malintopi, um, Ricardo Ramirez Hernandez. It's a pretty... Uh, broad mix, I think. Mm. So this is sort of a um, event for uh, for ICSID to, in essence, just uh, address uh, the problem that there are not always available people on the roster, so they can also tailor make a, 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 a list of their own that they can pick from. I think. But, I mean, is that for real, though? I mean, if every state has four appointees and even even assuming they don't have four person do you, are, are we saying that we don't have anyone like from the how many people would that be if you multiply by the number of states it would be about 600, 600. Yeah, yeah 600 at a given time yeah, well, do you think it's an availability thing or it's just that they want to have their additional list as well i've heard exit people on panels uh, at conferences complain about this that well they don't have 600 people I don't know how many they do have and how many of them are mm -hmm. actually uh, uh, able to conduct an arbitration uh, but they have too few and you know they, the circumstances may be super specific you may have mm -hmm. uh, a different language involved and you may have a lot of conflicts involved yeah, and you may have people who have acted on different sides in cases before so they've had several cases when it's been really really hard to appoint an arbitrator because they are they, their hands are tied essentially to to the list but that is not always the case there's this ballot procedure as well mm -hmm. so the ballot procedure is uh, another way to sort of get around quote unquote the the uh, otherwise applicable exit system and it was informally adopted in 2009 by the Secretariat at ICSID. Um, and it differs from the normal ICSID appointing authority procedure in three respects. One, the Secretary General provides a list without being constrained by the roster. Two, there is no role for the ICSID chairman or the World Bank president. And three, the procedure can fail to generate a chair, for example, in which case the normal procedure kicks in and um, the applicable appointing authority procedure is applied to get a chair in place. So the way it works under the ballot procedure is that the Secretary General first provides the parties with a list of potential arbitrators. And this list appears to vary in length from three to seven to five or more candidates. And it's unclear. Um, who decides uh, or which factors determine the length of the list might just be a, an evolution of time. I'm not sure. Um, but the Secretary General freely selects the proposed arbitrators, is not limited to the exit roster. And then the parties have a short period to separately communicate to the Secretariat whether or not they accept or reject each proposed person on the list. And if one of the proposed arbitrators is jointly accepted, he, she is then nominated. If more than one is jointly accepted, ICSID selects 
uh, one of them. And just to explain this before we um, before I let you in, I will again read with my Meg Kinnear voice because she has explained uh, how this came about. Mm-hmm. And this is Meg Kinnear. Under the convention, you are basically meant to go to the roster for appointments. Where the secretary is asked to appoint, we didn't have the ability to appoint what we would call off-roster or off-panel. So we thought about it, and we have a part of the convention that says that if there's consent by the parties, any arbitrator can be named. So then we developed a system where, because both parties consented to a non-panel name, we would have the legal authority to appoint. We thought there was a lot to commend this approach because at the end of the day, having a consensually appointed nominee, even if it's from a smaller list provided by the secretariat, is probably better than just imposing an arbitrator on the parties. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this? I don't know. <laughs> I... Yeah, I have no, I have no comment okay. on that. How okay. how are we do, how are we doing with diversity? Um, in in terms of you know with all these rules on on appointments of arbitrators, um, and you know what you mentioned about nationality requirements. I mean, how does that impact, um, if yeah, at all, it's a good uh, the fact well, that the Secretary General McInnes has actually stated that whenever possible. ICSID tries to include at least one female arbitrator on the ballot and also tries to ensure regional diversity. So I guess we're okay. sort of back at the uh, what, what would happen at you know any other arbitral institution that again, or, or, or appointing authority, with the exception that we do have this rule in the ICSID convention that they should strive for, for uh, regional diversity. So they have to do that under the ICSID convention, I think. Now, let me ask you this. I'm done now with the ICSID ar- arbitrator appointment procedure. Who among us do you think will be the first person to end up on either of this, uh, these <laughs> scenarios, either nominated by a state, put on the exit chairman's list, or proposed as part of a ballot procedure? Among us, you mean under 40? Um, yeah, assuming we're all under 40. I mean, the three of us. Oh, oh, on, oh, us. Oh, us. I think we can leave that to our... Uh, <clears throat> our listeners to comment on that. How, what do you think about that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> And then we can probably, um, you know, market ourselves in the next segment. Yeah, I mean, I'm flying into Tahiti tomorrow just to get on this list. Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. But Joel, I mean, who's on the Swedish list? It's actually being renewed, more or less as we speak. I think it um, expires. All too convenient. (laughs) A month from now. Well, I mean, uh, I'm obviously about two decades too, too junior to even be considered. Um, I think it's Kyle Beer is on it, Christy Söderlund is on it, uh, Bosse Nilsson, and then there are a few, or maybe one, uh, sort of commercial arbitrators who I don't think have had any exit appointments, at least. Uh, but it will be renewed. On the, list, on the French list. Carole Malavaux is on the French list. So, you know, I just have to continue what I'm doing <laughs> and wait a little bit more, and I'll, I'll be on the list. That's right. <laughs> And Brian, you are screwed for the U.S. list, probably. It's got to be a tough competition for the U.S. What's list. What's your nationality, Brian? American, Swedish. Oh, it's your dual national. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Joel? Swedish solely. Solely. Maybe one day you'll be something else if you mm. marry wisely. Yeah, maybe. But the risk is then <laughs> that I, I might uh, 
bar myself from future arbitrator appointments. The more nationalities to have, the that's a larger the potential for conflict. Second nationality. Ah. They're like you've now conflicted yourself out from arbitrator appointment. Ah, okay. Whatever. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Whatever. I mean, I'll just go to a random country. I mean, seriously, just pull out the list of the states that have not appointed someone yet, and just go there. This is actually a perfect segue to our next segment, which is pitches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put a nice little portfolio together on your on your recent experience, and then fly over to a random country. But Jill, do you think what is the hardest thing? Like, is uh, from the three mechanisms that you have described? Do you have any idea uh, of what is the hardest list to be on? Well, I would imagine the ICSID chairman list, which is yeah. only ten names. It's the people on that list are people who, who, at least in the view of the exit secretariat, are you know go-to arbitrators. They keep getting appointments. Yeah, yeah. Regularly, yeah. so th- that's hard to break into. I think you basically have to be uh, very senior or from a place that is uh, significantly underrepresented. Well, Yas is on the list, right? You said Yas Benef- uh, Benefitemi. She's, uh, she's, you know, of course, she's a leading figure in, in investment arbitration in the world, but she's not 80 years old. And she's no. a woman. Mm, that is true. But, uh, yeah, it might be, which is also a dual citizen, right? Oh, Irani, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And French? Uh, yeah, maybe. I think so. I, well, obviously, this is like diplomacy. We don't really know how the states think about this. But in France, though... Similar to, I think, will be the case in Sweden. France actually had like an open tender procedure when they uh, yeah. re nominated people. They published like this is what we need in order for people to apply, and the, these are the criteria that we will look at. And then people had to apply, and uh, so they sort of formalized it rather than just g- getting it, giving it to. And it was pretty intense procedure. Actually, there were interviews and stuff, and yeah, it wasn't uh, just a formal call for application. It was like a proper process. Mm, okay, but uh, we will not disclose which states have updated <laughs> lists so as not to create a stampede of arbitration. Busting down customs doors. I think we should do happy fun time instead. I'm in the mood for, for an afternoon beer. All right, let's do it. Okay. Happy fun time. We have made it to the end in our slightly more serious segment than we're usually used to, but we will be talking about pitches and glamorizing your firm. And now I think we can be safe to say that we're not going to talk just about investment arbitration, but also about commercial arbitration, um, because the processes are completely different. Um, So should we maybe start with investment arbitration Mm -hmm. and then move on over? Always. Um, and so investment arbitration, always, exactly. Uh, investment arbitration will depend, of course, on which side you're representing. Um, so if we start with the investor, um, that, I think, is a very interesting technique um, because typically you got to catch a dispute before it arises. I was going to say, I've hardly seen, have you ever seen a call for... Tender from an, from an investor? investor? No. Yeah, exactly. Because that's usually you, you're the one going to them and be like, you have a case. Right. Right. And if it's a huge oil company, for example, they already have retained right, counsel course. in their transactions, so they would just move it over to their disputes department if they have one. Yeah, I think so. I imagine. 
And if if it's a smaller company, I've seen a few times that the like the the notification to the state from the claimant is written and drafted by a non-arbitration lawyer, typically some sort of general, you know, corporate lawyer or something who has that investor as a regular client. And then they try to start the arbitration. And if it goes somewhere, maybe they will retain more experienced arbitration counsel. But it could also be that, you know, someone just has a longstanding relationship with someone and Mm -hmm. they do like litigation work for them or transactional work for them. And then we might as well try this treaty case thing, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, even before then, because I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, when you get to a certain level, you have to start thinking about how to get cases. And, um, and Sadi, you can obviously speak more to this than I can, but you would see, I think the one time I started thinking about it quite concretely was the um, Belt and Road, the, the Chinese mm-hmm. like, construction project. Mm-hmm. Old bar. Yeah. And everyone was kind of like, oh, there's going to be a lot of disputes there. Like, mm-hmm. let's get into those areas and see where the pipeline's going to go and see where um, all the construction's going to happen and start talking to the developers mm-hmm. there. And like, it was like a field day. And clearly construction is just like a breeding ground for for disputes. So people mm-hmm. saw these type of like new initiatives or new building. I think BP built a pipeline that was like crossing 15 jurisdictions mm-hmm. or something as, as an exaggeration, but a, a few jurisdictions. And then everyone was like, all right, pick, pick one of those yeah. and let's move on in there. Cause something's bound to break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I have seen that also recently with all the legislative changes that have happened um, in Africa, but also in the renewable energy market, of course, with yeah. respect to everything that's going on in Spain, then, then, um, then yeah, there's been a lot of conversation. Or you know, maybe we should you know contact uh, other energy you know, providers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, who would be you know affected by either these um, you know legislative changes or any other sectorial change? Or like you mentioned, you know, you choose a region or you chose a focus or you choose a, right. So yes, I I agree. And and in investor state, it's it's less of a. I mean, I have never actually responded to an application for tender in that sense. No, it was more like you have the initiative right. of going and contacting the investor, our prospective investor, or your own clients actually, and tell them about a potential, you know, potential arbitration case. Um, yeah, it must be easier to sell the idea on on um, a potential claimant who is already a, a trusted client that you work with in different contexts, rather oh, than. Yeah. Cold- cold calling people that you know have a potential oh. to try to convince them out of the blue definitely absolutely and i think that 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 you know that's a general statement for not just investment arbitration but also commercial arbitration just generally speaking not just in arbitration actually in general for all lawyers it's so yeah. much easier to work with your internal you know internal client base for a potential claim than or you know just instruction than than going and pitching cases for yeah, and that's the benefit of a big firm, obviously. Mm-hmm. you We had some like BD exercise, and it was basically saying like most of the cases that you're going to get are not from someone like knocking on your door and telling right. you I have a case. It's from a transaction that someone you, you know has handled, yeah. and now they need you to pick up the pieces. Yeah, but, usually it's like lawyers from other departments, you know, that have no... No, they should, but they don't have any knowledge of also basic like investment protections in the right. BIT, for example. They wouldn't even think about that for their clients. So it's good that they know you. So right. in fact, you should probably market yourself to your colleagues internally more than you should be doing. You know, some dances outside of the firm. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does feel in a sense. I mean, we people the ambulance chaser is like the derogatory term to call a lawyer, but I mean, we're investment arbitration 
practitioners that represent investors could be regulation chasers where it's like you see a regulation change and you're like, uh, 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 yeah. you all have claims, come yeah, on over. Yeah, exactly. Passing out flyers. Oh, yeah, what about your legitimate expectations? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I bet you expected something different, didn't you? Exactly. Get on over here. <laughs> come to my booth. <laughs> Wait, but on that um, note, can I ask you more seriously though, this I guess applies both to investment and commercial, obviously, especially if you're representing a claimant. You are both up and coming, uh, ambitious law firm employees. At what point, if at all, do you get any training in this and like the the business side and selling your services and uh, approaching clients? Is that how big a part and at what stage in your career is that something that the law firms like assist associates with? At our firm, at my current firm, it's a like mid to senior level exercise. It's not a junior level. Um, Actually, I think some of the juniors were even included uh, just to get them thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But they they split it up a little bit in kind of like the the psychology of pitching versus like the physical pitch. Because Mm. in a bigger firm, you do have someone who helps you. Um, Their job is business development. And so they'll kind of help you create the pitch. Um, In smaller to mid-sized firms, you will have to write the pitch yourself. Um, So the idea is the kind of like how to convert interest into an instruction um, is kind of the is what you have to do. And it's a bit... They try to make it scientific, and I never bought into that. I think I'm a, I have a little bit more EQ than some lawyers, I guess, which is kind of like, you know, each time you meet your friend, talk about business a little oh, yeah. bit more. Yeah. And then that's like, you know, and then it's like on yeah. the third meeting, it should be 30% business, 70% social. Yeah. On the fourth meeting, it's like, okay. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. But yeah. you can imagine some, like, people yeah. who are on the spectrum of our of our industry. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I would, I would second what Brian is saying. I have actually seen an increasing awareness of law firms. And again, like I'm not speaking of one in particular um, towards, you know, a business development and training their lawyers towards it. I don't think it was the case a couple of years ago. And right. also I think there's a difference between um, American and non-American firms. Let's put it that way, right? right? Because... Right. Um, for example, um, just to give a you know concrete example, I mean, <clears throat> and the French ethics rule for lawyers, um, you know, for the longest time, you were just not allowed to, you know, hey, call me, so you know, or yes, yeah, so yeah. business, right? Same that's Sweden. a whole cultural, yeah, and I think it comes from a whole cultural understanding of how you know you who you are as a lawyer, uh, whereas. In the U.S., you know, you see those billboards of people and and you injured, know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, but it's true right and i think this is also why you know some firms have probably done it earlier than others um and how maybe in the market they behave differently but in arbitration again it's a different market it's a whole different world right so i feel like every firm now is um knows um that is essential um to a have a specific bd department because that's also a thing i think I think every it's it's absolutely necessary to have you know a dedicated team of people who are um, you know preparing those pitches of course um, but as Brian said I think as a lawyer you absolutely need to work hand in hand with these guys um, to make that happen um, so you do need to have some some training. B B D is business development just for the actor. Oh yes, sorry, business development. Yes, business development. And then actually, I had a question for you, Jewel. I mean, I can just because it has become um, 
it has become also a, a service that some university <laughs> are starting to provide to law firms. So they offer, you know, some uh, specific, um, you know, MBA programs or they come in and they teach their teams how to be, you know, uh, to, to prepare a pitch or some marketing skills and so on. So like leadership skills, oh, wow. actually. Hmm. Because I think this is a job that you... This is a whole different skill set that we don't usually have as lawyers, to be honest, right? right? right. I mean, it's not. Um, well, I mean, you you are saying it's probably natural for you to think about because of your personality and how you are. But it is true that I don't know if I can generalize, but the, you know, as you you can be an excellent lawyer and have zero social skills. Yeah, <laughs> my work because yeah. it always was that, right? Your work would speak for itself. Yeah. But the problem is you're working in a confidential sphere and it's not going to speak. So Yeah, but that's the problem. The whole law firm business model is at some point if you do want to become partner, I imagine that, you know, in every firm it's kind of the same ways you got to bring in business yeah and how do you bring in business i mean you could it, it might be sufficient that you're technically you know amazing lawyer and people just refer to you but if you're not getting out of your office at all yeah just billing 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 billing, billing and nobody knows who you are then how is that going to happen no absolutely not you need some other rainmaker person yes so jewel <laughs> this is an opportunity for you you could like you know add this to your skill set like you know teach us how to do this from an academic perspective <laughs> that's uh, that, that not 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 i i'm guessing those universities you're talking about aren't swedish universities <laughs> american again yeah, uh, but Joel, sure. couldn't you i mean you definitely are i mean we we could all potentially do this but you specifically since you would be able to go to different law firms is speak to them about the contacts of you know people say okay well i want to be a part of a pitch okay so let's talk about the other side right pitching to a government and that usually happens through a tender and that tender happens this way and these are the mm. contacts these are the ministries and the certain governments that you would have to contact and here's what they look for here's what to highlight like that type of thing if you're a firm, which especially now firms are trying to get into the investment arbitration market, would be quite useful, and maybe they could pay you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. I'm. Yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. Such. I'm not sure I'm the proper person to do it, but no, there's I'll a lot of. It, it, <laughs> there's a lot of inside knowledge there, of course, and in, on paper, uh, unlike the case when you're pitching a claimant investor, everything should be transparent. But it, we all know that it, it's basically the same depending on the applicable legal framework. Sometimes the, it's, it's very regulated and it's a public tender, and you know strict rules apply. Sometimes, depending on which state and what what rules are applicable, the state can just decide who will get to represent them, and then you're back to basically the same situation as with any commercial client. But it takes a lot of specialist knowledge and different states obviously operate differently i i think for example that the, what you described Sadia, the the us uh, approach to pitching wouldn't fly with most states who aren't the united states who are a bit more skeptical mm -hmm. towards lawyers just showing up and try to represent the state by being aggressively marketing themselves joel have you seen a tender bidding document Yes, I've seen several. I actually have one here from, uh, it's a, let's say it's an EU member state because I haven't, uh, I can't remember how I got it. I would assume it's all public, but in any event, it's 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 kind of super specific. So the, I mean, there are two scenarios. I think we can talk about the the other scenario soon, which is when states who have many cases do sort of a preliminary thing where they like make a selection and say we will let these five or ten firms 
be the firms representing us for future cases. And then you have the other scenario, which is the one that I have a tender in front of me for, which is when a, when a dispute has been notified or a dispute has hit, then the state goes looking for lawyers. And they publish lists which are super detailed. So here, uh, the requirement in order to submit a tender here is, well, A, that you are registered as a law firm under the state's national laws, the law firm's own national laws, which is not controversial. But then the firm should be able to put forward the following partners. A, two partners who have successfully represented parties in investment arbitration cases. Each of, the, each of them must have been a lead counsel in at least four successfully concluded investment arbitrations. Oof. In one of which he or she must have represented a state and one partner who has successfully represented parties in international commercial arbitrations. The partner must have been a lead counsel in at least 10 successfully concluded international commercial arbitration cases with at least 20 million US dollars or euro in controversy. <laughs> wow. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like they have already recruited someone. Just, <laughs> no, seriously, that's, that's like true. these UN jobs, like, you know, app, you know, it, it's exactly that. It's so specific. It's yeah. actually been written for someone who's already... Yeah, it sounds like it. And then I have no idea if this is reasonable or what this says, but there's another part, with, which is that the firm also needs to have insurance covering its professional liability for at least 20 million euros. That sounds like a lot of insurance for me, but I obviously have no idea. No, I think that's actually pretty that's, common. That's fine, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually pretty common. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not thing. 100% sure about the amount, but it doesn't sound crazy to me. But I've seen other tenders, going back to the general point here, where it's not just partners, that it's, all, it's also specified how many associates and what kind of experience they need to have. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so a tender that I was on was because I would have been the junior on that team. You have to specify the team. And then that whole team has to list their experience in investor center arbitration. Mm -hmm. So you even need your junior to be quite experienced um, related to other juniors of that level. But you would have to, you basically, because this was for a list, so some states do a tender, a tender process without even having a case, and they just want a list so that if something comes up, they can quickly um, mm. retain a firm. And so that would be basically, oh, and I think you have to commit that you wouldn't leave the firm in a couple of years or something like that, oh, as, or yeah, the partner okay. level. Mm -hmm. But basically, oh, that the team wouldn't change. So you had to have the partners, the senior associates, and the associates that would be on the case, their CVs. Um, and so it wasn't as detailed as what you're talking about, but it definitely asks the general questions and, and then the full team, and then they would choose a list. And I think the list was like, I don't know, 20, 20 names long. Yeah. Hmm. I also saw some... Um, some of the tenders where they ask for specific sectorial experience as well, because it was a project in, you know, some kind of energy sector, for example, or a construction project or All right. something very specific, you know, um, dispute. And so they wanted someone who had that expertise also. In, the, in another part of the center, they also talk about how they weigh different factors and they weigh the financial aspects to 40% and this, the other yeah. things, 60%. That's, I think that's an interesting question. How how well do you know when you're bidding against other firms what they charge? <laughs> do you try to, I you mean, don't. I'm not talking, yeah, you don't. I'm not asking you specifically now and you and your firms. I'm just trying to think out loud. Like how how transparent is the market rate, and when do you know what is competitive and what isn't? Like, do you try to underbid what you would otherwise uh, bill? Well, because there's it's a good firms. Case? There's firms that do that actually, and then they'll do that in many situations, and they actually do that on purpose to get the. To, they get 
the instruction. It's like a firm policy under bid to get the instruction. And then you kind of expand the scope of what you had initially bid for. Cause mm. you basically bid with a budget and say like, this is what it would include. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, Oh, that didn't include interim measures or that didn't include this. And then mm. you're able to expand your budget. And I think that's very frowned upon. And mm. I, I don't think that's fair to anybody in the industry because it's not competitive uh, for the market of your competitors, but it's also just misleading the client. Yeah, it's true. But I, there have been experiences where um, not a state, that's true, that hasn't happened. But like, um, you know, it was more in commercial arbitrations, actually, where someone would call you up. Actually, it has happened for a state, but it wasn't in an, it wasn't into an investment arbitration context. But they call you up and they're like, hey, you know, that firm said this much oh really yeah so can you please you know match it match it <clears throat> if you don't then it's them and it's like because they prefer you for right. other reasons so then you yeah so it happens yeah because your pitch will include your rates and every firm is getting very creative and how to present yeah, exactly. their rates yeah, yeah yeah exactly some firms are not some firms are very rigid but a lot of firms are going to be quite flexible blended rates or mm -hmm. um you know periodic milestones of how much it would be for you know project-based type of um, and some pricing. firms um well again this doesn't apply to states uh especially in investment arbitration context but some firms would also um have funding already oh mm, i've heard that right so that changes everything like they say you know it's going to cost you zero right i've heard that <laughs> firsthand for some firms they do that so that's kind of also yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's another. You also have to like uh, to pitch to funders now. That's a recent thing well, that everybody. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You have to pitch funders, and we we're just talking about that earlier, right? Yeah. Um, you have to pitch funders, and that's why also there's a lot of firms that have close relationship with funders now, mm. um, because of that reason. Yeah. They're hand in hand doing the pitch together. Um, but if you do um, are looking, if you are looking for a funder, then yes, it can last for a couple of months. Gosh, before the actual, I've had that experience recently, actually, for months and months and months. I, uh, you know, representing a potential claimant in a potential investment arbitration case, um, who claimant didn't have money, so there's no way, you know, we could have gone forward if we didn't have a funder and the funder would ask us you know legal memos questions on secessions you know mm. um, we had meetings we had i mean for months and that you know is something that every firm i think on the market is doing right for yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. no absolutely yeah. um it's yeah it's really difficult and now claimants are being very privy to this type you know in both commercial and investment arbitration that it is possible to get funding and now they don't want to do it, but that's a whole other segment, the funding segment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, a whole other segment, yeah. But it's difficult. I mean, it's just like applying for a job. You, you know, you can't embellish your experience more than your experience speaks of. So if someone has a very particular claim, you need to have that experience. You need mm -hmm. to have the firm resources behind you. And it's really hard to say otherwise. But it's, you know, it's, it's the chicken and the egg, like applying for jobs. You need experience. So you need the job mm -hmm. to get experience. But... You need the experience to get the job. Yeah, but to be honest, there's so many examples where, you know, a state or an investor, actually both sides, but especially states, have appointed like a friend of a friend or right. someone because mm. they knew someone who wasn't necessarily the best suited 
you know, lawyer for the job. And it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it has had disastrous effects, actually. Just like applying for jobs. Yeah, just for like <laughs> applying for jobs. And now they're like, oh, no, we need to be careful and stuff. But uh, Right. Yep. But there's, I mean, there's, I think it's, I didn't, at my old firm, there was not a specific BD, business development department. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to have it now to see the value of it, it is, it is quite valuable because they, they can do so much. And you can, if, even if you're not going for a formal pitch, but you're going around to do a little roadshow, um, which is a way to get business as well, yeah, to kind yeah. of go around to in-house counsel and say, we'll teach you guys something about what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that roadshow, depending on which jurisdiction you're in or whatever, you can get kind of like a tailor-made pamphlet of that specific jurisdiction, um, of that specific industry that kind of lists the statistics that have been pulled by the BD department that say why this, why we know what we're talking about and why we have the resources to handle that type of case, which I think if you're a, a mid-sized firm, that's, that's really hard. It's a really mm-hmm. hard statistic to pull. Yeah. Um, we have this many like lawyers from around the world that can do you know, renewable yeah. energy cases mm-hmm. and this many lawyers are women and this many are this and this many people speak your language. And <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a helpful marketing material, but yeah. um, I don't, it's quite difficult for a smaller firm. Yes, very true. And I, and I would say since we're talking about marketing and more, in general, yes, of course, there's the formal, you know, responding to tenders and et cetera, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? Especially yeah. in this market. I mean, it's just, you know, it's uh, publications. I mean, why are firms paying so much money to, I'm not going to say anyone, but for <laughs> these, you know, live conferences that are going on everywhere in the world? I mean, mm-hmm. this marketing, right? It's yeah. just 100% directed as, you know, increasing your, um, your profile, I guess, uh, in the game. And um, I, I think so. I mean, I think this this is also something that has changed uh, a lot in the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, even getting into a band and gar requires a pitch. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's anything, you're, you're constantly selling yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that's not, it's so, it's difficult, right? Because we're not... Trained. No, that. and also mm-hmm. that's it's a bit. I mean, again, this is my French side coming out. Like, this is dirty, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's I have not, the same feeling. Come on, <laughs> yeah, don't you? I mean, it's like we're we should be we're intellectuals, no? Or are we mm-hmm. just service providers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a, another great topic. <laughs> Let's do that separately. What are yeah, we? That'd be a good conference topic. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And you don't have to do anything. To, I mean, we haven't even talked about academia. Yeah. <laughs> no. For good I mean, there are, both when we're pitching funders and when you're trying to bid for states uh, instructions, that it's actually pretty common that you hire academics or that yeah. you have to hire academics to evaluate your claim uh, if it's for a funder or to evaluate the, the firm's experience if it's uh, for representing a state. So that might come in. But uh, pitching yourself as an academic, that's a whole different topic. Uh, I'm still, I have no idea where we are in the in timeline of this episode, uh, but I'm so, so much hoping we will be able to make it under an hour. So I'm hesitant to go in further. <laughs> Joel's been pitching for this yes, for a while. Exactly. Um, fine. Okay. I mean, no one cares about you anyway. So we can end <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's true. I hear about you a lot. Just kidding, my little bookworm. <laughs> oh my gosh. Brian's going to include you in his next pitch. That's what is going to happen now. Yes, actually, Joel, I might call you later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll see. Good luck. Good luck with that. Oh, yeah, he's not going to answer the phone. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, I'll we'll put this episode on ice then, Joel, and hopefully we get it under an hour for your sake. Um, don't forget to contact us at the Arb Station. Yes, please do. At Twitter or the Arbitration Station at gmail.com. Um, we are active and ready to answer. And in another episode in the books, guys. Yeah, with comments and any other suggestion of topics, actually, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. All right, Joel. Signing off from London. Bye. Hey, do. Bye.